also it's a little cozier, a little fewer people, so we can think this is a good night for the secret teachings. Just kidding. I'm rather excited tonight to uh, to speak or to say something, but I'm still not quite sure what I'm going to say. <laughs> Although while I was sitting, I had rolling through my mind the uh, the line "Do no harm," and many of you who may know me or know my car uh, know that I have a sticker on the back of my car that says, Do no harm. And a few people have reminded me when they've seen me speeding by <laughs> that it's a good thing I have that sticker. <laughs> Unfortunately, other people see it, I don't. <laughs> but I was reflecting on do no harm. And usually when I think of do no harm, I think of doing no harm to anyone else, to not causing suffering. But what often gets overlooked is that do no harm means do no harm to ourselves. means to regard ourselves with the same care, the same respect, uh, the same attention, that we uh, offer to others in our commitment uh, of doing no harm. And innocently, I would say, it's we have, I think, developmentally uh, lost our, um, our sensitivity. I think I can generalize. Lost our sensitivity to doing no harm to ourselves. From the time we are born, you could say, and especially in Western culture. Again, I'm making a few leaps tonight, and I'm bringing in a little bit of psychology. In Western culture, it is very common for children, uh, as, we, as we are developing, to look to our environment for cues of how to be. And because many of our parents are what might be in psychological terms described as narcissistically wounded, having some sense of uh, internal sense of insufficiency, a sense of uh, a habitual dependency on validation, habitual dependency on outer circumstances for our sense of well-being, that whole that... that people chronically carry around uh, in our culture gets easily projected onto our children. And we were all once children. And the way that shows up is that parents begin to live vicariously through the, uh, the actions of their children. And they depend on their children uh, for their sense of well-being. And because they're because they, there is a tendency to be not terribly self-aware. I think have most of you noticed that. It's a culture of not a lot of self-awareness. Because of the lack of self-awareness, parents unconsciously 
suggest to the child that you're okay if you do this and you're not okay if you do this. You're, you will be praised if you smile. You will be blamed if you frown. You will be, if you succeed, I will love you. If you don't, I, will, I may well withdraw my love. Any of you ever experience the fruits of that conditional love? Well, children learn at a very young age to, uh, to dance, to dance, to alter their behavior, to make sure that they keep a steady stream out of love for ourselves. We, we make sure that we know what it takes to please the, the source of our sustenance. At least when we're developing, the, the source of our, substance, of our sustenance is external. It's our parents. And then it's everyone else who, who we meet. Consequently, in that process of becoming externally dependent ourselves, depending on how we are viewed for our sense of well-being, we begin to lose a sense of what is really naturally me. What is, the, what, is the, what is the unique expression of life that, that I am? What is, what is the, what's the nature of my heart? We become so obsessed with fitting in, with being accepted, that a hole is left, a hole of insufficiency that then sometimes hardens into a feeling of rather than a feeling of, as I've been using the line from Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, rather than that feeling of being the richest person on earth, I start unconsciously acting out a, um, an expression of unworthiness. I'm not okay as I am. My okayness depends on, on uh, whether or not I receive approval by others. And in that process, I've very innocently, unconsciously self-abandoned. I've abandoned myself. I've left that... that it's amazing this lighting system's going. It's, we've got gremlins. I've left that inexhaustible resource of wholeness. I've, I've completely lost touch with that... Um, that richness, that unique expression of life that I am, that in, inherent beauty and sufficiency, enoughness, just the perfection that each of us is, perfect expression of life, miraculous. And I've moved into the world of what I call Sakayaditi, the world of self-view, of the personality view, where I am... I am measurable. I'm either up or down, high or low. I'm loved or not loved. I'm, I'm praised or I'm blamed. I'm, I'm either gaining or I'm losing. And in that world of measurement, I'm reinforcing moment by moment the, uh, the story and then the feelings that go with it, the story of insufficiency, the story of unworthiness. And... I've, I've lost that sense that, uh, of how to, what you might call, hold my ground, just to 
be right where I am, live in the truth. I don't even know what the truth is anymore. I just look for my cues elsewhere. And somewhere in the course of our life, hopefully, we, we become so sick of feeling disconnected, so sick of being unable to hold our ground, so sick of letting other people define our sense of well-being, so sick of feeling disconnected apart from the flow of life, so sick of feeling like a victim. Any of you ever feel like victims? You know, I hear, I have to say, I hear, uh, and I don't mean this, um, there's no criticism in this, but I hear endless uh, narratives, both in, from time to time in my own mind and from others, a feeling of victimization, a feeling, for example, commonly with, with moms. Moms do all the work. And the dads do a little work, but the moms tend to surrender to doing 90% of the work. The dads do about 10% around the house. And often both parents are working. And the moms take care of the kids. They pick up the kids. They take the kids. They cook. They clean. They do this. And the dads, oh, they make breakfast or they put the kid to bed. But they don't really, they don't really do the whole They don't really equal parent. In many cases, this is a common theme. And it is amazing how many moms are just resentful. There is so much resentment. And yet there are very few moms that will stand their ground and say, this isn't right. This is not balanced. Very few will speak the truth, stand alone in the truth, say, "Uh uh-uh. This doesn't work. And then feel continually like like victims. And this is just one example, and I don't want to just highlight women. Men do do their own version of not being able to stand their ground. In many cases, on the job in the same way. Taking on extra work, uh, and living in a kind of fear, living in fear of being either judged, criticized, or, and maybe this is a reasonable fear in this day and age, fear of being fired. But the chronic self-abandoning that takes place, the inability to hold one's ground, is, like samsara, never-ending. It has got to stop at some point. It's got to stop. Our life is short. One of our daily reflections is... You are sure to become old. You can't avoid aging. You're sure to become ill. You can't avoid illness. You're sure to die. You can't avoid dying. You are the heir of your, your, you experience the fruit of your karma. You will be separated from everything that you hold dear and dear. I'm paraphrasing right now. These are the five daily reflections. Our life, it's just a reminder, our life is incredibly precious and incredibly short. And we can literally live our life out in that constant search for validation, that constant search for rescue, that constant search to end our, to, to have somebody acknowledge us, but it just doesn't happen. We have to uh, 
stand our ground. We have to realize at some point in the, stand, in the span of our life that you are the richest person on earth and you have to stop begging for a living. You have to stop giving away your, your riches. You have to know, just as Albert Camus put it, you have to be able to know for yourself Even in the midst of difficulty, there is this in you that's invincible. He says, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. The more we self-abandon, the more we leave this present moment, leave that, that source of strength and power, leave that sense of, of, that we that sense of self-respect and the fact that we, are, we deserve to be here, that we are each a divine expression of life, a miracle, enough. Uh, we, have to, we have to reclaim this. We have to reclaim our heritage. So when the Buddha talked about there being dukkha, Everybody has their story of their li- in their life. Everybody's got their, their uh, there's a Yiddish word, surus. Everybody's got troubles. And the way the Buddha talked about it, everybody's got troubles. The cause of those troubles is uh, your reactivity. The cause of the continuation of what turns those troubles into suffering is the reactivity. Is I don't like it this way. I want more of this. And... The, the, um, the expansion of those two, of those reactions leads to uh, this uh, endless feeling of my aversion and my resentment leads to an end, endless feeling of, of dissatisfaction. My endlessly wanting what I don't have leads to an endless feeling of, dis- of, of more dissatisfaction. And more of that feeling that I'm not um, that I'm not enough. More of the feeling of unworthiness, because we get more and more diminished by being in a state of reaction. Fortunately, the Buddha talked about there being an end to that reactivity in our mind. The end of the reactivity that keeps making us run away from ourselves by running after. Uh, everybody's approval, or running away from anybody's disapproval. There's an end. There is a cessation to suffering. We can shift our attitude. We can become more whole. We can come home. We can stop running away. We can hold our ground. And how do we hold our ground? We first... What the Buddha recommended is you take refuge in awareness. You put your trust in awareness. You notice, I'm here. That's why I started tonight. Notice that you're here. Notice that, notice that you're noticing. And notice that that noticing is, there's a primacy to that noticing. That noticing is unconditional. It's unborn. That noticing is just, that wakefulness is 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 just right there, no matter what you go through. There is within you an invincible summer called awareness. 
called the Buddha. Buddha means awake. You are at your root awake. So he said, take refuge in the Buddha. And then he said, take refuge in the Dharma. And the most general meaning of this is take refuge in the truth. What's the truth? I'm sick of doing 90% of the work. I'm sick of it. And I'm, and I, and if this is, if I'm, if, if this is going to be a workable marriage, you've got to do half of it. And I've got to do half of it. I'm no longer going to unconsciously reinforce my unworthiness by not standing alone in the truth. By not, I am sick of working for love. I'm sick of going out of myself in search of validation. I'm going to let the world, let others adjust to me now. Now, this may sound very selfish, doesn't it? But this is the appropriate selfishness, the appropriate self-interest that allows us to come back to that single point, that single point that the Buddha called ekagata, which is the single point or the one point that includes everything. That one point that reminds us, that single point where we actually are right now, that single point where we are the eyes of the world, we are the, we are the source of love, of, of incredible grandeur, while we've been busy thinking of ourselves as, as unworthy in some way, thinking of ourselves as, as needing, to, needing to work for love or be in fear of what will happen next, we have that invincible summer in us. I stumbled this evening on the words of Marianne Williamson, who's very popular in the, in the world of the, uh, what's it called, the, um, her, the book um, Course in Miracles. And this was a quote of hers that has been attributed to Nelson Mandela, but he just read it at his, at his inaugural address. But even though if you hear it, you, you can tell it's not Nelson Mandela, but somehow it's been attributed to him. But here it is. It says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightening about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of the divine that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So I, I know I'm speaking in generalities tonight, but I'll leave it to you to uh, talk about your own stories or to reflect on your own Whatever it is that you do in your own life, male, female, that is self-abandoning, where you lose the sense of the Buddha, where you lose the sense of the Dharma, the truth, the way it is, and you stop 
whatever way you stop living in the truth, that you stop telling the truth, telling the truth to your friends, to your partners, to your parents. And for once, let them adjust to you. I I realized there was, um, in my 20s, I was always attracting in relationship people who, who couldn't really see me, who who couldn't really get me. And rather than say, this person doesn't get me, and just, just move on, stay in, stay in my own groove, what I would do is I would leave myself. I would, I would abandon, I would become kind of meek and timid, and I would work so they would, I would jump through hoops so they would love me. That was my version of trying to fill that narcissistic that whole, still in the habit that I'd learned to, to, uh, to judge myself based on how I'm, how I'm um, related to. And I saw that every time I did that, it was as though I had just gone on a binge with the worst drug, and I, was, I would be completely wasted, diminished, just worn out, and felt really, felt really small. And I made a commitment to myself. I would never, ever again uh, work for love. And this, this is all, as I said before, this sounds like all about me, all about self. But this was, what, this was one of the things that made it possible. This is the paradox of Dharma, that if you don't take care of yourself, you end up more preoccupied with yourself, spinning in that internal world of insufficiency. You take care of yourself. You stand alone in the truth. You hold your ground. You remember yourself. Then you are so full that all you can do is then fall in love. All you can do is be that, that light that ignites others, as Marianne Williamson said. But as long as I was looking for that in somebody else, I was leaking, I was diminished, I was, I was losing the Dharma, I was losing the Buddha, going unconscious. And so the Buddha also recommended not just the Buddha and the Dharma, the being awake and living in truth, but he also said, take refuge in, in the Sangha. Keep the company of people who, if you and you can't completely depend on this, but keep the company of people who will really support you to stand alone in the truth, to keep to to not live, not have your actions driven by fear of what other people will think of you, fear of losing your job, fear of losing your relationship, fear of whatever it is that tends to be the guide, and only leads to more fear. It only leads to more insecurity. So at the heart of the Dharma is taking care of oneself, is doing no harm to oneself, as well as doing no harm to others. As Hafiz put it, just sit there. Don't do a thing. 
Just rest. For your separation from the divine is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. So this is why we practice, so that we start to hear the, the echo of the truth. We actually can feel, and at first the, it gets worse before it gets better. We feel, start to feel the resentments, start to feel the ways that we have not cared for ourselves, start to feel the frustrations, the fears, but we use it all on behalf of staying home, of holding our ground. Everything becomes our path. And it doesn't mean by standing alone in the truth, everything will be pleasant. Remember, life has inherent within it stress, difficulties, things that are hard to bear. And by living in the truth, it's not somehow miraculously going to all go away. But what you do every moment that you fortify yourself, that you stand alone in the truth, is you do, you fortify yourself. You develop that calm abiding. You develop that, um, that one-pointedness. You cultivate, you get in touch with the natural happiness of conscious being. You get in touch with the intense interest and immediacy that... Um, that makes life inherently satisfying, independent of conditions. You begin to sense that even when your life is a mess, that there are, within that, constant glimmers of light. No matter how terrible, there are those moments, yeah, things things are okay, I'm fine. Not it. It's only when I get caught in the story of my life that I, things are so terrible. But I also have this sense, being here, that I need to do something about my job. I need to do something about my unfinished business. I need to say that to that person in my life. I need to get myself out of this situation. I need to plan. I need to strategize. All of that comes with much more clarity, much more skillfulness if I've, if I've cultivated the habit of mindful attention and, this, and a loving, caring relationship, not just with others, not just doing no harm to others, but a loving and caring relationship with this unique configuration, uh, this unique person called me. So it, it seems that it, to me that there's some truth that we really have to be, as one person put it, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. So we, we don't, we don't want to miss this, um, this most precious one. The Buddha said you could span the world in all directions and not find anyone more deserving of loving kindness and care than ourselves. So we always start with with the deep wish and then actualize that wish, the deep wish to be happy, to be peaceful, 
to feel safe and protected, healthy and strong. And we keep being guided by not wanting to do any harm to ourselves, by wanting to care for ourselves. And then we let our actions spring from that clarity of intention that I will not abandon myself again. I am willing to stand alone. I think I've said that enough times tonight. So I came up with a little list today of, of S's. Here we go. Things that help us to to really stay where we are, to stand our ground, to hold our ground. First one was smile. Put a little Thich Nhat Hanh half smile on your face. It's good for your nervous system. It doesn't mean to be phony. It means just smile. And then smell. Take in the smell. Take in, open your senses. So no matter what your situation is, you can smile, you can smell, you can see. Look around. The secret, the heart of being able to accommodate our difficulties, the heart of being able to hold our ground, to be able to then deal with and respond to what's needed in our lives, meet the difficulties, is be oriented to the present moment. See what's around. Look around. As that poem that I often read, see your fellow bugs. Look around. Nice room. Listen. Listen to the sounds. Let the sounds freshen your senses. It's my list of S's tonight. Squeeze. Give and receive squeezes. Don't yeah, beautiful. Love the holding hands. Squeeze. And then the last one is silence. Silence is incredibly empowering. So get used to it. Nothing, I know, gives, makes me feel more powerful, more enough than the support of the silence that lives in you and lives in me. And it, it instantaneously makes me unafraid. Because I know we're the same. And then finally, stillness. Another incredibly empowering capacity that all of us have. Yet easily overlooked, easily missed in the busyness of our lives. Silence, stillness. Of course, when we're together, as many squeezes as possible. Sights, sounds, smells. How do we do this? Just be mindful all the time. And do it with a loving heart. And because everyone has been entrained to self-abandon, to overshoot this, this intrinsic beauty and 
power and strength and love, since everyone, all of us in our role as victims and all the the so-called perpetrators in our life, everyone has fallen into the same kind of delusion. So we have to, as well as our mindful attention and our loving-kindness, have an ongoing practice of forgiveness, forgiving ourselves for what we have done or haven't done, said or haven't said, thought or haven't thought, and forgiving others for what they have done or haven't done, said or didn't say, thought or didn't think. And to the best of our ability at this time, one moment after another, forgive, forgive, forgive. Doesn't mean forget. Doesn't mean hold your ground. But we have to not put anyone out of our heart because we lose. So let's just sit for a minute. Sorry, no time for dialoguing tonight. I'd like to just share one of my favorite passages as a way of closing tonight. Frequently read on Tuesday nights from Donald Babcock from the New Yorker magazine, October 4th, 1947, entitled The Little Duck. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. He has made himself part of the boundless.
by easing himself into it just where it touches him. May all beings be touched by the power of simple presence. May all all beings ease into life right where it touches us. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings and do no harm. May all beings be liberated. May all beings hold their ground. Thank you. I feel better. (laughs) Had to get that off my chest. So just a gentle reminder that we are here all in the spirit of what we call dana or generosity. And I come here and offer whatever I have to share freely. And the invitation, as it's gone on for 2,500 years, is for you, if you feel to, to uh, practice your free uh, giving by supporting Uh, me or whoever takes the seat with the Donna basket over there. As well, the room is offered to you freely uh, and yet depends on your generosity for to uh, continue to be offered to you freely. So this this circular motion of giving and receiving is what's kept the teachings going for 2,500 years. So this room costs us $150 a week, $600 a month. So any support for the room rental is much appreciated. We have this new program called An Evening at Mission Dharma. It's been very well subscribed so far, but it's a beautiful thing where if you offer the dana for the, for the evening, uh, there is a plaque in the back. I guess it's not up tonight. We don't have a donor for tonight, but the plaque will have your name or the name of somebody who you may be honoring or anonymously, however you want to do it. But uh, it's a way of both practicing generosity, which is a big part of the teachings, and supporting this sangha, which is a really that makes us able to be here. And so thanks in advance for that. And any other kind of support for the room rental, uh, teacher dana can be put in the basket. And any form of dana can be uh, written as a check to the uh, St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church, and then your whatever offering that you make will be uh, made tax deductible since we are not a nonprofit, but the church is, and they've offered very generously the option of us being able to um, run our Donna through through them. So thank you for all your support. Thanks for your practice, and hold your ground. What's that? Oh, the memo line of the check has to say Mission Dharma. Thank you. Anyway, wonderful being with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.